Romans 7 verses 13 through 25 is our text for today. This is the 37th message in a study through the New Testament book of Romans. Romans was written by a missionary. One of the reasons why the Apostle Paul wrote it was to raise money for his missionary trip to Spain. The heart of God is missions, and maybe God is calling you as one of His children to go tell the story to those that have never heard it. Maybe God is calling you to be a missionary. But even if He is not calling you, He certainly is calling you to help to assist those who have gone and are going. I want to pause and thank you for sending the group of missionaries this week to Jamaica. It was a wonderful trip. The Lord was honored through the word that was proclaimed and through the kindness of the missionaries toward the people of Jamaica. So thank you very much for sending us. Uh, today's message is 45 handwritten pages. And the title of the message today is Thesaurus is for us. Turn please to Romans chapter 7. As you are turning, remember that God loves you. Hear the word of the Lord. Beginning at verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that whenever I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Father in heaven, <clears throat> as we study these verses today, help us, Lord, to intellectually grasp them, to understand them. And Lord, please bring us to the point where in desperation we will cry out for help. And then, Lord, please bring us deliverance through Christ Jesus, our Lord. This I pray in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. So in recent weeks, my sermons have had no outline, uh, that is, no structured points. Not that they have been pointless, simply that they have lacked structure. Uh, more or less, it has just been a verse-by-verse -verse commentary. Now, those who preach teaching classes at seminaries tell you not to do that. They tell you to have structure and to have main points. And I believe that that is wise counsel. Um, preaching experts will also tell you don't have too many points. And I believe that that is also sage advice. Well, those of you who are preachers or those of you who will preach one day, um, I would encourage you to listen to this counsel. Have some main points, but not too many. My sermon today has 14 points. <laughs> and they all begin with the letter C. For your listening pleasure, they all begin with the letter C. And in my defense, if you take all of the sermons that I have preached from this pulpit in 2024, you add up all of the main points and you average them out, I'm giving you 3.5 points per sermon, which is about where we need to be. Today, that average is helped by these 14 points. 
And each one of these points, beginning with the letter C, is going to be used to give a title to each verse. And if we are successful in doing that, then it means that the thesaurus is for us. Another word about the structure of today's message, and that is, by assigning a title to each and every one of the verses, I realize that what I am forfeiting is the logic or the flow or the progression of the passage or the interaction from one verse to the next. But hopefully I think you will see that the thoughts within the individual verses are so straightforward that you're going to be able to grasp the overarching argument uh, with relative ease. Before we dig into the text today, let's do a very quick review of what has been going on in Romans 7. Paul draws an analogy between the binding nature of the marriage covenant and the binding nature of the Mosaic covenant. In other words, the law of Moses. And here's how the analogy works. When your spouse dies, you are free to remarry. Likewise, now that you are saved, you are dead to the law and you are married to Christ. And now we who are saved walk in the new way of the Holy Spirit. Does this mean that the law of Moses is sin? That is a question that Paul asks, and the answer is no way. But here's what sin did do. Sin employed the law as a means, not only to reveal sin, but also to amplify sin. In other words, the more the law tells you not to do something, the more you want to do it. And then Paul goes on to speak in an autobiographical manner, and he said that the law brought me to the end of myself, and it dashed my spiritual pride. And the way that Paul discovered that he himself wasn't as good as he thought that he initially was, was specifically through the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. I thought myself to be a pretty good guy, Paul says, until that commandment revealed the selfishness in my heart. Which brings us to our text today, which is verses 13 through 25. Now, last week I spent 68 minutes in, on the message and we were considering who is the speaker in these verses. It is Paul writing as an unsaved man describing his pre-saved condition? Or is Paul describing his current situation as a born-again Christian who struggles with sin? Well, as I told you last week, that debate has been going on for about 2,000 years and it seems to be at a stalemate. Both sides have scriptural and logical reasons for their stance. Personally, I don't take a side. Uh, not because I haven't decided yet, but simply because I don't think that that is even a consideration in Paul's mind. Uh, it, it is not his goal, nor is it his intention to describe a believer or an unbeliever. Rather, I think it is Paul's intention in these verses to describe human beings, both saved and unsaved. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones would agree with me. Lloyd-Jones said, anybody who delights in the law of God, and that's what it says in verse 22, Paul says, I delight in the law of God. Anybody who delights in the law of God cannot possibly be unsaved. And Lloyd-Jones says, anyone who calls himself sin's slave, and that's what Paul calls himself in verse 14, anyone who calls himself sin's slave cannot possibly be saved. So, Lloyd-Jones says he's not really talking about a saved or an unsaved person. Last week, I read you a quote from Richard Longnecker. Now, my question is, is it Longnecker? Because there's an E in there after the long and before the necker, or is it Longnecker? I don't know the correct pronunciation. I don't know this man. I couldn't pick him out of a lineup. However, I do know that he does a summary of this chapter. And I liked it so much last week that I read it to you twice. I liked it so, so much that I'm going to repeat it for you right now. And not only am I going to repeat it, but I'm going to put it on the screen behind me so that you can read it. Here's what Richard Long or Longenecker says concerning who is being referred to in Romans 7. Human beings because of their inherited depravity and their own sins, have become spiritually and personally schizophrenic. This is all 
people, that, that is all people contain within their persons and express in their actions contradictory attitudes and qualities that apart from divine intervention keep them from doing the good things that they know to be right and are always being driven to do the evil things they know to be wrong. I really think that he gets it right. It's what Tom Schreiner calls the anthropological condition of human beings. I don't think it's necessarily talking about saved people. I don't think it's talking about unsaved people. I think it is just talking about people, people. And then Paul goes on in this beautiful passage of scripture in a very artful way to make his point through what is known as a soliloquy. What is a soliloquy? Well, it's an actor in a play having a conversation with himself or herself, which the audience is allowed to listen to. And, and his style and his content is borrowed from the lips of characters in Greco-Roman tragedies. Characters who knew the inner struggle of knowing what is right, but yet choosing to do wrong. And Paul did this because he knew that his audience in Rome was familiar with these characters and with these plays and with their soliloquies. People like Euripides and Ovid would write of these characters who would have these soliloquies, who would talk about the inner struggle between right and wrong. Now, that is not to say that these pagan authors inspired the Holy Scriptures, nor is it to say that the conclusions that Paul is going to draw are the same ones that these pagan authors came up with. It is, however, to say that in Romans chapter 7, verses 13 through 25, Paul is employing an artful style or an artful way of communicating and connecting with his audience based upon commonly known, well-accepted, dramatized human emotions. In other words, what we have in the passage is a story. One additional thought that I did not point out last week, which will be helpful for our study today with respect to the method of communication in Romans 7, 13 through 25, and that is not only is it a soliloquy, I, 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 but it is also written in what is known as elliptical style. What is elliptical style? Well, it means that in many cases, some of the nouns or pronouns or verbs will be omitted, but their intended presence is well understood. It would be like if I were to say um, to you, you were going somewhere, and I would say, can I go with? And you would understand that what I mean by that is, can I go with you? It's, it's an elliptical style. An elliptical style also means that the sentences in this section are shorter. They are terse. They are, they are less complicated and they are brief. Now, the reason that I point this out is because, ironically, Romans chapter 7, verses 13 through 25 is one of the most feared and complex passages in the Bible. At least it has that kind of a reputation. But in reality, if you just look at what is being said, it is a very easy passage to understand in terms of what the words mean and what the sentences are saying. Most of Romans is really challenging, and I will admit is the most difficult passage in all the Bible that I have ever had to deal with. This book of Romans is, is just, it's a, it's a masterpiece, but it is not easy. That is not the case in this particular section. The sentences are pretty much self-explanatory because they are written in an elliptical style. Now, it's not the C-spot run, but it is very straightforward. And, and so it better be very straightforward because we have 14 points to get through. With that said, let's get to work. Let's get to work. Verse 13 Verse 13, our C word for verse 13 is context. Remember, when interpreting a passage of Scripture, context is king. And what is the context here? Well, in the previous section, Paul says that sin, as an opportunist, used the law to deceive him and to kill him. 
And then Paul quickly, in the previous section, affirms that the law is good. But this begs the question, and Paul anticipates the question that we find in verse 13. And what Paul essentially says is, I got killed and the law was there at the scene of the crime. And so, are we then to assume that the law brought me to death? And the answer is, by no means. Verse 13, did that which is good, which is referring to the law, then, here's the conclusion, did it then bring me to death? And the answer is, by no means. It was sin and not the law. It was sin using the law, but it was sin not the law. To put it this way, guns do not go to jail. Guns do not stand trial. Guns are not inc- incarcerated. People go to jail for using guns unlawfully. Sin is the guilty party, not the law. The law used sin. And then Paul amplifies this in the second half of verse 13 by building the context for what will follow. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that or so that sin might be shown to be sin or shown to be what it really is and through the commandment that is through the law might become sinful beyond measure. What does this mean? Well, it means that sin is bad. And to some degree, all of us know this. Even people who will not admit that there even is such a thing as sin will admit that sin is bad and you can prove that to them simply by punching them in the nose. Like they will admit that that is not good. However, sin apart from the law is allowed to masquerade as though it isn't really that bad. And then along comes the law into the masquerade party and pulls the mask of sin off and exposes sin for what it really is. It is sinful beyond measure. We don't know how sinful sin is unless the law shows up and turns on the light. I've used this illustration before. I need to use it again because it really makes the point. You know those silly mirrors that people have where they're round and and there's like a hinge on each side. And one side is like normal. Like you look at it and that's that's like a normal that's a normal mirror. But, but it has a light for some reason, and then you can flip it around, and when you flip it around, it is amplified. And when it is amplified, every deficiency is so exposed. There, there are a series of wrinkles and sunspots and other unsightly flaws. And, and, and here's the thing. They are there whether you're looking at the mirror or not. But I don't see them until I use this amplified mirror with a bright light. It is then that my dermatological deficiencies are exposed. It's not the fault of the mirror that I have wrinkles. My skin in and of itself is the problem. And in Romans 7, Paul is saying that the law is making it clear that sin is worse than we think it is. That is the context. The law has exposed sin for how bad it really is. Now, what follows in verses 14 through 25 is a detailed description of just how bad we are and just how powerful sin is. How bad are we? We are so bad and sin is so powerful that we are not even capable of doing what we want to do. That is the C word. That is the context. In other words, what I'm about to show you is how powerful sin is, which brings us to verse 14. And our C word in verse 14 is contrast, contrast. Read verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but by contrast, I am of the flesh sold under sin. The phrase, for we know, implies that what is about to be stated is common knowledge. Everybody agrees with it. Nobody's arguing about it. It is a given. And what are the given truths given in verse 14? Well, first of all, there is the given well-established truth that the law is spiritual. In other words, it comes from the Holy Spirit. It is divine. It is the divine inspired word of God. It is spiritual. Now, right beside that, by contrast, 
Take a look at this. I am of the flesh. The law is spiritual, but by contrast, I am of the flesh. And being of the flesh does not just mean that I am a human being with a human body. It means that my origin is not divine. I am a human being with a sin nature. And that sin nature is further defined by the phrase in verse 14, sold under sin. Uh, the imagery here is that of slavery. And you remember back in chapter 6, Paul used that slavery imagery. Just as the slave is under the control of the master, so too sin has a dominating, controlling influence upon fleshly human beings. And so picture it sort of like as a boxing match in this corner wearing the white trunks hailing from heaven is the law which is spiritual of the Holy Spirit. And in the other corner wearing the black trunks is in this, in the other corner is me and I am a human being who is bossed around and controlled by my sin nature. That is the contrast. Here is the beauty of the law, and right beside it, here is the ugliness of me, the contrast. Which brings us to verse 15, and our C word in verse 15 is confusion. And by the way, there is a place on the back of your bulletin to follow along and take notes if you so desire. Verse 15, the C word is confusion, confusion. For I do not understand. Now, anytime someone does not understand, it means they are confused. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. In soliloquy form with an elliptical style, Paul says, this is a real head scratcher. This baffles me. I am puzzled. Uh, you would think that I would be able to understand me. When you're talking about assessing other people, you, like you think that you know them, but every once in a while you have to admit, hmm, I didn't understand that person as well as I thought I understood them. I was wrong. But you would think that you would always be able to understand yourself. <clears throat> but the Bible says you can't. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing, and the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. You are so much of a liar that you are always lying to you. And, and, and my actions end up being a mystery. It causes me confusion. My wants and my desires, well, they are not in any way mysterious. I always want to do right, I honestly want to avoid evil. There's no ambiguity whatsoever in my intentions. But notice in verse 15, it is not my intentions that are puzzling. It is my actions that perplex me. You see, at the end of the day, even though my goal is to be good, that doesn't happen. And because I think I want that to happen and it doesn't happen, and it's just me with me, well, I'm very confused. You see, Paul's writing style here, once again, is very simple. And the vocabulary here is very simple. And the thought is very simple. And everyone understands it. And everyone can relate. And all will experience this confusion. And once again, what is this confusion pointing us to? It's pointing us to what verse 13 in the context said it was going to point us to, how bad sin really is. So, I don't just end up doing the thing which is not my preference to do. No, I end up doing the thing that I hate. Hate is a strong word there, and it's even stronger here in the Greek language. And Paul is absolutely right. When I make an assessment of the things that I have done, and I look back on them, I think to myself, first of all, yeah, I wanted to do better. I don't end up saying, hmm, that thing that I actually ended up doing, that was not so much my preference. No, it's worse than that. It's, I cannot believe what I have done. It was so bad. I never dreamed I would have done that. Paul says, I end up doing the thing that I hate. Now, how is it possible since I hate it? Well, that's where the C word, the confusion, comes in. 
Which brings us to verse 16, and our C word there is the word confession. Not confession as in admitting to a crime, but confession as in this is where I stand. This is my stance. This is the answer that I come up with when I do the math. I am forced to confess what? Verse 16. Now, if I do what I do not want, I confess or I agree with the law that it is good. Wait, uh, Paul, you're confusing me here. Let me, okay, let me ask. Do you do what you do not want to do? That's correct. Well, Paul, then, since that is true, it means that you have to make a deduction. You have to come up with an answer. And what is that? And Paul says, I can tell you exactly what it means. It means that the law is good. Well, Paul, couldn't you have just told me that to begin with? I mean, after all, you were raised as a Jew. You were raised to respect the law. Did you need to experience this defeat in order to conclude that the law is good? Well, no, I always knew that the law was good. But now, experientially, I really know that the law is good. I know it more definitively now that I have experienced it. Why? Because I have gone through a process of failure, of experiential knowledge, trying to be good, and then doing the exact opposite, and it drives me to the answer that the law is good. And so, you, based upon your unsuccessful attempts to climb the mountain, are going to be more convinced that the mountain is steep and high. I don't think there's anybody in the room who has climbed Mount Everest. I would love to be wrong. Wouldn't it be wonderful if someone in our midst had done this? If you have, please come to me. I will let you like share the, your adventure with the church. I will be fascinated by it. But I think none of us have done it. If I just say to you now, those of you who have not even tried, by the way, has anyone here tried to climb Everest? Well, we found something we have in common. All right. Would you not agree that it is high and it is steep and it is difficult? I don't think there's anybody in the room that would say, no, I, I think it's, I think it's manageable. I think I could do it. No, everyone would agree. But you would say it in a different way if you were to fly to Nepal or Tibet and you were to embark upon it. It's 29,000 feet. Once you have tried and you have failed, then you would come back and with more enthusiasm, you would say, it is high and it is steep and it is difficulty. My problem is my inability to climb. The fault cannot be found in Mount Everest. And here is my confusion. I don't know what I'm doing and here is my confession. Because I do not know what I am doing, I must conclude that the law is good. That is my confession. And I experientially can tell you that it is good because I have failed to climb it. I have failed to keep it. Which brings us to verse 17. And our C word in verse 17 is company. When you get a visitor at your house, you say you have company. Well, in this particular case, Paul identifies the unwanted squatter and sin has moved in and they have unpacked their suitcase. This is a personification of sin. It is a literary device known as personification. It makes sin a person. Sin is not a person, but in a literary way so as to connect with the audience in the soliloquy using an elliptical style, Paul refers to sin as a person. And in verse 17, he said that the person has moved in with you. Verse 17, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells, that is my company, sin dwells within me. Oh, wait a minute, Paul. You do do the sin, do you not? As evidenced by the fact that you are the one who does it. And Paul says, well, yes, that's true. But yes and no, see the confusion above. Because 
I hate doing the evil, but that's the real me. But it ends up happening, and that's not because of the real me, but because of this ugly house guest that I have that never flushes the toilet, this house guest named Sin. Sin is my company, and sin is bad company. So, don't be confused. Paul is not saying that since sin is with him, that he himself is not responsible. Paul understands that he is the one that is committing the sin. After all, he uses the word I with respect to sin. Paul is not saying, I have nothing to do with this whatsoever. He is saying, I have no power over this house guest whatsoever. The I to which Paul refers here is the I that wants to do good. And the I wants to do good and to avoid doing bad. But in actuality, what he ends up doing is what is bad. And the bad which ends up being committed is driven by the evil house guest named Sin. Bad company. You say, well, this makes no sense whatsoever because Paul is only one person. He certainly isn't schizophrenic. He understands that it is he himself that he is talking about and there is no one there. I agree with that and Paul would agree with that as well. Once again, it is poetic language. It is literary personification. It is the imagery concerning the power of sin moving into your life. This is not an anthropology lecture. This is an artful way of saying sin has moved in. Best way to describe it is this. You go off for your freshman year of college and your roommate is always getting you into trouble. But let's be clear. You are the one who is in trouble. That is our company, our bad company, who is sin. Which brings us to verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Now, no, uh, grammatically speaking here, that verse eight, uh, verse 18 starts a new paragraph. And in many ways, what we are going to read in verses 18 and following will repeat what has already been said in verses 13 through 17. But it is not just repeated verbatim, but it is amplified and it is intensified somewhat. Notice that this is not a temporary lapse. But this is a chronic condition, and, and it's worse than you can imagine. Paul says, I know that in me, that is my flesh, dwells no good thing. Paul is not saying, you know what, I'm about 60% bad, and since I'm about 60% bad, I always end up losing the fight. No, the text is saying, I am, left to myself, 100% bad. Earlier in verse 14, Paul said, I am of the flesh. And here he defines the condition of being of the flesh. Being fleshly is so bad that nothing dwell, nothing good dwells in me. And then he proves his point by repeating the, the, the record of his failures in the second half of the verse. It's like the doctor walks in and says, sir, you've, you've got a terrible condition. What is that? Well, sir, you are fleshly. Oh, all right. Well, is that is that pretty bad? Well, sir, you don't understand. It's not pretty bad. It's totally bad. There's nothing good that dwells in your flesh. Oh, doctor, could you please just like describe that? Like, could you give me some sort of proof? The doctor says, "Yeah, let me prove it to you. Here are the results. You do not do what is right, but you." And, and you, you do do what is wrong, even though you want to do what is right and you don't want to do what is wrong. You have absolutely no ability. You have absolutely no self mastery. You, there is total inability. There is total depravity. That is our condition as human beings. There is none righteous. No, not one. Which brings us to verse 19 and our C word is contradiction, contradiction. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. That is the 
contradiction which occurs in verse 19. Now remember, up in verse 15, we labeled the C word confusion. Here it is contradiction. But it's basically the same uh, in 19 and also up in 15. But notice there is an intensification in verse 19. It's not just a one-off mistake, but it is a perpetual failure. The end of the verse says, I keep on doing it. Unbelievers love to point out the contradictions in the lives of Christians. They will look at us, they will watch us closely, and they will say, you know, you say that something's bad and you condemn it and you walk around as though you are so pious, but then I see you doing the very thing that you say that you hate. You are a hypocrite. Well, not always. The hypocrite tries to act or to pretend as though they are righteous, and then they secretly will live a double life. Paul's character in Romans 7 is a little bit different. Paul's character in Romans 7 sincerely desires to do what is right. But their life ends up being a contradiction of their own true heart's desire to love and obey God. What Paul is saying here is that everyone is conflicted and that nobody is 100% consistent. This applies to all human beings, whether they are saved or lost. We are all walking contradictions. That's how bad sin is. Which brings us to verse 20. And our verse, our word, our C word in verse 20 is culprit. Culprit. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. The culprit. Uh, did you notice that, and, and you need to look at your Bible on this one just to do a comparison. Do you notice that in verse 18 it is almost the same as verse 14? And do you notice that verse 19 is almost the same as verse 15? And do you notice that verse 20, which I just read, is almost the same as verse 17? In verse 17, we called this sin that is with us our company. And here we call it the culprit. And you say, well, what is the difference? There's no difference that I can detect. I'm just trying to prove that the thesaurus is for us. Coming up with different words. It's the same thing. But even though it is repeated, it still deserves our attention. In fact, I would say because it is repeated, it especially deserves our attention. And here's why. And we have to go back to the context in verse 13. The entire argument is to prove that the law is not the problem, but that the problem is sin that is dwelling in me. And please note that this soliloquy in its elliptical style is very easy to understand. And if you didn't get it the first time, it is repeated. And Sunday after Sunday, as I am preaching Romans, I stand up in front of you and I say... Almost sheepishly, I think, based upon my research, this might be perhaps maybe what Paul is saying. And, and, and I look into your faces and I conclude oftentimes that I have done a really good job of confusing you. Today, with this, if you are confused, it's not Paul's fault. It's not my fault. It's your fault because this is just plain and simple. We have found the culprit, and his name is sin. Verse 21, our C word is conundrum. A conundrum is a difficult problem. Verse 21, so I find it to be a law or a principle that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Now again, this is, this is confusing. It creates a conundrum, a difficult problem. And the principle is this. Every time I try to do right, wouldn't you know it, evil shows up. Every time Sherlock Holmes is working on behalf of law and order to solve a crime, lo and behold, Mr. Moriarty shows up. You cannot coast through life with, with, with 
being able just to freely do good. In fact, as you are coasting through life and just having no concern for righteousness and no concern for godliness, no attempt for bringing God glory, no passion to advance the kingdom, well, I've found that pretty much sin will just leave you alone. I mean, don't the, the devil's not going to wake up a sleeping dog. If, if, if you are having no effectiveness for the kingdom, you're pretty much just going to be left alone. But as soon as you commit to having a consistent prayer life or a consistent life of intense Bible study, as soon as you dedicate yourself to faithful service in the church, as soon as you say, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, that's when, W-H-E-N, that's when sin sticks up its ugly head. And the temptations become stronger and the circumstances become more difficult and the flesh gets weaker and sin makes its presence felt. You know, when Anna and I were first married, this was the oddest thing and I could, I could never put my finger on it. Six mornings a week, we got along famously. I mean, never a fight, never a word. Good morning, sweetheart. How are you? I love you. I love you too. And doggone it, wouldn't you know it, every Sunday morning on our way to church, we would get into a fight. Tuesdays, Thursdays, Saturdays, got along famously. But always a fight on the way to church. How do we solve this conundrum? Well, one way to solve the conundrum is to stop trying to do good and then sin will leave you alone. But that's not a real solution. A, 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 a conundrum is a conundrum because there is no simple answer. It, 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 on the surface, it, you, you just can't look at it and like figure it out. It's an enigma. It's a riddle. It's a puzzle. Now, one would think that when I want to do good... I would be rewarded by myself with the ability to do good. But paradoxically, when I want to do good, in actuality, I am so bad that I end up being worse when I try to do good. When I want to do good, sin says, let me get my hat, I'm coming with you. You know that it's true. It perplexed the Apostle Paul it will always perplex us. It is a conundrum. Which brings us to verse 22, and that is our C word is the word conscience. Conscience. Verse 22. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. In the deepest recesses of my heart, I want to do what's right. I have a conscience. Let your conscience be your guide. That's not, that's not airtight, waterproof advice because your conscience is not always a perfect guide. However, your conscience is a guide which can be good. And some people have consciences which are better than others. Some people have consciences which are sensitive. Some people have consciences which are seared. In the Greek tragedies that we looked at last week, there were some really wicked people. And in their soliloquies in these plays, they confess that they know what is right and that it would be better to do right. Now, this came from Euripides off the, 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 the pen of Euripides through the lips of Medea. How bad was Medea? She killed her children so that her cheating spouse would suffer. That's how bad this woman was. Yet before she does it, she has a conversation within herself and says, I know this isn't the right thing to do. Every human being, no matter how bad they are, has a conscience. Even the worst of people know what good is, and in their hearts they know that good is good. And Paul here is speaking as a Jew, a Jew who knows the law. Whether he's saved or not, that's irrelevant. 
Saved and unsaved people can make this sentence, this statement, and so can you and so can I. Because we are not animals. We are image bearers of God. And so we know that good exists, and we know that good is good. Conscience tells every person that. And this is amplified by the fact that Jews who knew the law would even have more light and and they would have those that had delight in the law would have even still more light and as Christians we have even still more light it's universally true it's a statement for all image bearers of God we all have a conscience we all know what good is and we know that good is good which brings us to verse 23 And the C word in verse 23 is conflict. Now, this is one verse in the text where you have to put on your thinking caps. You have to pay attention even just a little bit. But even paying attention just a little bit, you'll get it. Um, my, My outline today, using all of these C's and breaking every verse down into a separate title, in some way blurs this verse We need to look at 22 and 23 together. 22 is positive, 23 is negative. So in describing 23, let me read 22 and 23 together. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see another, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members." Put it all together, 22, I delight in the law of God on the inside, 23, on the outside, I can't pull it off. Now, in looking at 23, we have to define some terms. First of all, the word members. Members refers to individual entities which make me up. It is referring to me as a person in my totality, my mind, my emotions, my will, my body, etc. Also notice that verses 20 and 22 and 23 are an expanded form of what is in 21. In 21, we have the conundrum, and then in 22 and 23, we just have that amplified or expanded. Interestingly, interestingly, in verses 21 through 23, the word law appears five times, and it doesn't mean the same thing in every usage. It's used three times in verse 23. So let me do this, and I don't always do this. this. In fact, I, 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 it's very infrequent that I would do this. But let me paraphrase verse 23, giving you the Edmore version. Um, hopefully this will help to explain the conflict that is going on. Here's the Edmore version of verse 23. In contrast to me, delighting in God's law, there's another set of principles at work in my flesh. And these fleshly principles are at war against the law of God that I delight in. And the fleshly principles win the battle and they enslave me and put me to work for my fleshly Desires. I think that's it, more or less. Let me give you the inspired version from the Apostle Paul one more time. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Simply put, there is a conflict, and man alive, I always end up losing. My desire is to obey God's law, and I lose the fight to my sinful desires which dwell in my body. Now, this verse is not saying that we are to wage a good warfare. In fact, there's no imperative in this at all. There are no commands. It is simply a sad description of the way things are. It is the person that has come to the end of themselves and they have admitted, ah, sin wins and wins and wins and I lose and I lose and I lose. The bottom of the barrel is verse 23. You can get no lower than this. Even though I fight for holiness, I always lose. And you have to come to this point, both intellectually, in other words, understanding what is happening here, uh, confessing it, yes, that's true, 
And you have to come to this point emotionally if you're going to be helped. Intellectually, you have to admit, yes, sin is defeating me. And then you have to come to the point where you say, it is defeating me and it has brought me to the point of despair. It's then that you can make the emotional cry that we have in verse 24. And verse 24 has as its C word, cry. The cry of despair. The cry for help. The agonizing lament of a defeated man. Look at verse 24. Wretched man that I am. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I have come to the point where I have lost so many times that my description of myself is that I am a wretch. Wretched man, not that I used to be, but wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? That's a question. I'm enslaved. I'm trapped in this body of death. Everywhere I go, unfortunately, I take me with me. And my sinful flesh enslaves me and defeats me and causes me to do things that I do not want to do. Now again, I bring you to the context back in verse 13. How sinful is sin? The law is introduced so that sin might be shown for what it really is, excessively sinful. It is so sinful that it has enslaved me and defeated me and doesn't even let me do what I want to do, what I delight in. It is a body of death. I am a walking corpse. That realization causes Paul to cry out from the depths of his heart, who will save me? I realize this morning I have not done a lot of preaching. I have done a lot of teaching. May I preach for just a second? Have you come to the point where you cry out in your heart, who is going to deliver me? Who is going to help me? I've tried everything. I have made so many New Year's resolutions. I, I, I have I have entered so many accountability groups. I, I have set out on so many Bible reading plans. And nothing works. And I always fail. I am in a body of death. Can somebody please help me? Help me! Who will deliver me from this sinful power that is over me? You see, friends, there is a difference between the intellectual understanding and the reasoning of verses 21 through 23, explaining how it happens technically. It is no longer I that do it, but sin that is dwelling me. There is a big difference between that and just the gut-wrenching verse 24. I need help! I need help! I need help! I'm not asking you if you do bad. I know that you do bad. And you know that I do bad. I'm asking you, has that realization broken your heart to the point where you cry out to God for deliverance from yourself? Oh God, please deliver me from me. Who will deliver me? Verse 25. The C word, no surprise, is Christ. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I'm so glad that the cry of verse 24 is not a rhetorical question. Like, well, there's no answer. I mean, who will deliver you? There's, there's nobody to deliver you. I mean, you know you're stuck, but, but there's no help. No, no, I'm glad that he actually answers the question. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the answer for the non-Christian. You're here today. You are not saved. 
you, you, you know you're not saved. You need help. You need to be saved. Here's your answer, Jesus. And this is also the answer for the Christian, the one that is struggling with sin. You need help. What's your answer? The answer is Jesus. The answer for the saved or for the unsaved. Both are losing the battle. The answer for you, wherever you are today, or whoever you are today, is Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, it is He. Christ is the answer. Why? Well, don't miss this. Because all of the defeat and all of the compromise and all of the confusion that Paul describes in 13 through 23 was something that Christ knew absolutely nothing about whatsoever. He delighted in the law of God and he kept the law of God. He is different than we are. He was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. He was victorious over sin and Satan and the devil. We are not. Spotless Lamb of God is He. He lived a perfect life, not the life described in verses 13 through 23. And then He died in place of people who lived the life of 13 through 23. He died for sinners. Christ died for our sins. The just for the unjust. Substitution. There is a swap. There is the perfect Christ and then there's the us. And we're bad, and he's good. And what happens at Mount Calvary is he says, give me your bad. He takes our bad. He goes to the cross. He pays for our bad at the hands of a good God. And he pays for it in full. It is finished. Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. And not only did he defeat sin, but he defeated death, and he rose from the grave which tells us that the gospel is of first importance. The answer is, who will deliver me is Christ. This causes Paul to have a thankful heart. Oh, thanks be to God. Man, you, you, you walk into this church and you understand the power of the Christ to save? Something is seriously wrong if you do not walk in with a thankful heart. Thanks be to God. This gospel, by definition, makes us thankful and grateful. Which brings us to the end of the text. That is verse 25b. And our C word here, fittingly, is the word conclusion. So then, conclusion, I myself, in and of myself, left to myself, with sin as my companion, a failure, I myself, and Paul, remember this, is, is wanting to do what is right. He has a desire for, the, for the, the, the love of God and the law of God. I myself serve the law of God with my mind, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the plight of the unsaved. This is the plight of the Christian as well. And I think it's very fitting that it is so simple and that it is so straightforward that this passage would end with such a concise, straightforward conclusion. So, I was so fearful of Romans chapter 7. I mean, I think it's just a big puppy dog. It's just like, it's just, it's just like right there. You can understand it. We, we've got problems. We want to do the right thing. We can't. And Jesus is the answer. That's your Romans 7 for you. The reality is plain and clear. Two observations. Number one. I want to tell you what's not in the passage. The Holy Spirit is absent. This is by design. This is intentional. It is a description of what human beings look like on their own apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That is going to change in chapter 8. But for now, for now, in large part, 
The struggle and the defeat and the confusion and the failure are due to the absence of the Holy Spirit. So, you do not have to wait for chapter 8 in order to be sensitive to the Spirit and to submit to His voice and to listen to Him. I just want to say, everything that I've been talking about for the past several weeks has not included the Holy Spirit, and that was Paul's intention. This is what life looks like apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. There's going to be a difference when we get to chapter 8. And observation number 2, Christ is the answer. What is the question? It doesn't matter what the question is. The answer is Christ. The, 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 what is the question? Well, there's a million questions in Romans 7. And in every instance, Jesus is the answer to our weakness, our defeat, our failure, our duplicity, our misunderstanding, our confusion, our disappointment, and our sin. So since he is the answer, cry out to him. Lord, help me. Jesus, help me. He knows your state. He knows your failures. He knows all of them. He knows your sins, and yet he died for them. And do you know why he did? It's because he loves you. Because he loves you, you can cry out to him, and he will help you. All right, seven down, nine to go. Which means what? Means we're getting there. Father in heaven, thank you through your word for showing us our true state. Lord, may this bring us to a point of desperation whereby we, through the power of your spirit, cry out and receive help from the only one that can help us, and that is the Lord's Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen.